0: it's a pleasure to have y'all here tonight. Uh, We're going to be going through the American Legacy series. And um, I'll tell you, I'm probably about 15 minutes ahead of you in regards to the knowledge that we're going to be sharing tonight. My head is swirling with things that I want to share with y'all. But I want to tell you how this all came about. I remember when I was elected to the city council and uh, I took the oath of office and they said, raise your right hand. And it used to be that you put your hand on the Bible, but it said, raise your right hand. And then it went through the oath of office. And part of the oath of office said that, that we swear to defend, I swear to defend, the Constitution of the State of California, which is the second longest constitution in the world. It's just behind India's. Um, and then it says to also defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And as I uh, gave that oath of office, I realized to myself I know very little uh, of the U.S. Constitution. For example, one of the questions was how many articles are in the U.S. Constitution? And as I began to realize I have a lot of work to do if I'm gonna uphold this oath of office, we step into office and we look at this Constitution and we have to understand what it's about and what we're called to. And so there's seven articles in the U.S. Constitution, 27 amendments, And as I began to study in depth and go through this, um, I was sharing with a number of folks and they said, can we do this? And so we started kind of a class on Friday mornings at 6.30 with a few of the guys. And uh, some of the ladies said, can we participate? And so we uh, decided to do it on a Wednesday night at 7 o'clock and invite the entire community. Some of you have probably never stepped foot in this church before. Welcome. Uh, Some of you are thinking, well, this guy's, you know, into theocracy or dominionism or, you know, all the different terms. Really what we're gonna do in the next few weeks is we're gonna take a look at the U.S. Constitution, its founding, why it's significant, and we as Americans uh, can take a look at our responsibility and what it is that we're looking at as far as cultural transformation and and the changes. Uh, What's fascinating also is not only we're gonna look at the U.S. Constitution, but we're gonna also look at the Declaration of Independence. Now the Declaration of Independence obviously was before the U.S. Constitution, and in July 4, 1776, When they put the Declaration of Independence together, it it was our birth certificate. It was our birth certificate. Now, we aren't the oldest country in the world. Obviously, China is much older, and we can go on and on about different countries as far as the length. But under one article, under one birth certificate, under one article um, that governs us, we are the longest, uh, we're, we're the oldest government on the face of the earth. We have been under one single birth certificate for 241 years. Uh, here in the United States of America, while every other country in the world has gone through multiple changes of government, we have remained under one article of government since 1776. That's 241 years. Pretty amazing how I can count and keep that. Well, I'm, I'm probably off. But anyways, uh, another thing that I want to share with you is this experiment in in liberty and self-governance, um, a constitutional republic was never before seen on the face of the earth. And as we implemented this this constitutional republic, this idea that that we give people the right to represent us, and that we choose by our consent for others to govern us, as opposed to someone's will being forced on us, by consent we allow someone to govern us, is unlike anything that's ever occurred in the history of the world. As a result, America's experienced the greatest amassing of wealth. We've produced more patents, more symphonies, uh, we have more Nobel Peace Prize winners, And we have less natural resources than South America, yet we have flourished as a nation. And here we are, in a sense, uh, as Americans, really wondering if the Constitution can continue to hold us in the coming years as people are talking about this being an antiquated document. It's a living document, so we have to change it, and on and on, as though uh, there was some need to have a new government that no longer institutes the U.S. Constitution. I ask this question often, and I say, how many rights does the U.S. Constitution give us? And uh, folks will give me all kinds of answers, but the answer, real simply, is it doesn't give us any rights. It is a statute that protects the rights that are given to us by God. And we're going to cover that tonight, and actually, it says, by our Creator. And I don't care if you're Catholic, Protestant, agnostic, atheist, that's irrelevant to me. I'm not here to, to uh, well, I'm always here to evangelize, but the reality is... <laughs> you're here for a whole different set of reasons, and we're going to stay with that whole topic of the U.S. Constitution and why it's significant, because in a sense, it's the salad dressing that makes the salad what it is. We're, uh, there's a few tomatoes over here and some lettuce, and we got some onions. I greeted you. You need some gum. And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. But that salad dressing is what makes us the United States of America. We're bound by this Constitution. Now, For the sake of tonight, and the way we're going to operate in the coming weeks, is we're going to go from 7 to 8 o'clock. The minute that that video concludes, we go right into the teaching. There's no music. There's no music afterwards. This is a teaching session. You come with your thinking caps on, and we operate in that context. So I'd encourage you to arrive on time. We'll finish by 8 o'clock, unless we have a question-and-answer period, which just depends on how I'm feeling, quite honestly. Uh, Tonight, I don't think so. And so we'll, we'll have a question and answer period, and depending on how long your questions are, whatever it requires, we may go longer. I will do my best to end it at 8 o'clock, and if there's questions that go beyond that, I'll stay afterwards to answer your questions for you. So with that being said, are you guys ready to start? Yeah. Long introduction, but that'll do. Um, my wife and I just got back from a trip. Uh, my wife is celebrating the second anniversary of her 25th birthday just put that together, mathematics. It's late, middle of the week, I imagine. She's 50. Um, She gets younger and prettier. I get older and uglier and fatter, and she gets skinnier. I don't know how she does it. And anyone who's met her thinks she, oh, you don't want to go through that. Never mind. Let's just get back to the Constitution. So as we went on this trip, uh, we had a chance to go to Italy. And we'd been there before, and we'd actually been to Rome. I've never had the privilege to go to Florence, but when I was in Rome, uh, I saw a piece of artwork called the Pieta, La Pieta, and it was uh, with Mary and, and Jesus. And uh, here is Broken Body, she's holding him, and it's a, a fascinating piece by Michelangelo. And, and the way he operates as an artist and with the, the beauty of how he does marble, it's almost as though it, at any moment these things can come to life. The one thing I've always wanted to see, and I haven't had the privilege to do it, and in this trip I was hoping we'd get to, but we never had the privilege to go to Florence because there's a statue that I've longed to see for a long time, and it's called the Statue of David. We also know in Florence that Michelangelo also did a statue of Moses, the lawgiver. But this statue of David is 17 feet tall. It's made out of this stunning white marble. His hands are enormous. I want to show you a picture of it. Can we pull up the first photo? This is a statue of David. His muscles are rippling and, you know, it's a little R-rated, my bad. Um, But that's art. So anyone having a problem with that, we'll move along. But look at the size of his hands, and as he's gazing, the, one of the reasons why they did this is because he's looking towards Rome. Uh, let's go to the next statue. The statue came to symbolize the defense of civil liberties embodied in the Republic of Florence, and so David is looking towards Rome to say, don't meth- mess with us. Uh, Florence wanted to maintain its, its own republic. It, it didn't want the influence of Rome upon it, and so Michelangelo was um, asked to build this and so from 1501 to 1504 he's he fashioned this and uh, in September of 1504 it was unveiled and this is it you can see the gaze as he looks towards Rome I think I have one more picture look at the size of his hands now this is an art a uh, piece of artwork and it's fascinating and I wanted to share with you and this is something that you can pull up uh, in WikiLeaks uh, which is such a authoritative uh, where were we but Aristotle was the first one to take a look at any piece of artwork, and he, as he looked at anything that was was created, he acknowledged, and so did the ancients, that there were four causes to any piece of artwork. Four causes, and some of you are going, "What does this have to do with what we're studying tonight?" Hang in there, okay? So he said, "There's four causes to any piece of artwork. The first one is is the the, the causal matter, the material cause." What is it made out of? Let, let's go back to the statue of David, if we could, uh, to the large one, uh, the very first picture. Uh, let's go to the second one, because I don't want everyone getting all freaked out. But as you see, this is the, the, the material cause is made out of what? What is the material? marble and it's this beautiful piece of marble standing 17 feet tall all he had to work with was this just absolute block of marble and he saw this before he began it was in his mind's eye and he began to fashion this and it's so vivid that it looks like it's going to come to life you see the, the the muscles and and the just the physique and everything that he's doing the gaze in his eyes it's almost as though he's about ready to step off of that podium and just continue into life and it was Michelangelo who put this together, and the material cause for why he, with, with how he did this was marble. That was the material cause. Now, you're going to want to list these if you're taking notes. We're looking for the four causes. The first cause is the material cause. The second cause is what they call the efficient cause. And the efficient cause is, is uh, real simply, uh, who made it? Who's the, the person that affected this, this transformation? Who made it? Anyone know? I gave you the answer. (laughs) Who was born on your birthday? Raise your hand. Okay. (laughs) Michelangelo is the efficient cause. He's the one who made it. Now, the third cause is what they call the formal cause. What is the form of what he made? So excited for your knowledge. Yes, David. He made David. David. Now he made David because here you have one of the greatest stories in mankind of of going against a giant, going against unbelievable odds stacked against you and being victorious, um, as as Goliath demeaned David and impugned him. David said, "You come at me with spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the lord and and you 've offended him, and he takes him down with a sling as this nine foot ten inch giant is facing him in the valley of elah you 've got the Philistines on one mountain ridge you 've got the uh, the the uh, israeli or israelites israel israelites on the other mountain range, and for forty days Goliath has come out and and just condemn them and say, send a man out to fight me. Everyone is paralyzed. Even Saul, who is the largest in the army, he won't even go out. And this ruddy little boy and the scripture says that he was handsome. He was beautiful in appearance. He was one of these, I always call him Captain No-Pimple, chiseled out of granite, you know, and he just, everything about him was beautiful. And he goes out and he takes on this this giant. He's, you know, and, and Goliath said, I'm going to remove your head and feed your your body to the birds of the air. And David said, no, I'm going to take your head from your body. And he begins to run at him. And obviously, he lets that that stone go, hits Goliath in the forehead, brings him down. He goes over. He doesn't have a knife, so he has to take out Goliath's sword, cut through the neck and the entrails, bounce up and down on the sword, crack that thing open, lift up the head as all the entrails. And you can imagine a 9-foot, 10-inch giant what his head looked like. He's holding this thing up. It inspires the entire Israelite army, and they begin to vanquish the enemy of the Philistines and push them out. And another fascinating story is that the Philistines, when it said that they were in Judah, they were occupying God's territory. This rightfully belonged to God's people. And the Philistines were in there. He pushes them out and defends this. And this is one of the pictures that Michelangelo wanted to put forward. And, and this was not only the material cause and the efficient cause, but it's the formal cause because he wanted the republic of florence to be able to say look if rome wants to mess with us and you come into our territory we'll push you out so he creates this with all of that influence of the four causes and he has him gaze his eyes towards rome to hold off the romans and and to hold together the republic of florence now those are three of the four causes but the fourth cause which is fascinating is the one that is what we're going to look at later tonight and it's called the final cause and the final cause is What was the motivation for why Michelangelo did what he did? What was the final cause? What was the inspiration for why he did what he did? We can only assume, but we can also say for many artists, there was a love for the subject. There was a desire, and, and maybe it was inspired by a desire to protect. Maybe it was, for some people, their, their final cause is money. But you look at this, and you can think, that man didn't make that statue for money. He made it because he had a heart to design it. Had he made dogs playing poker, we wouldn't go to visit that in Florence, right? Right. The subject matter was fascinating, and as was the, the, the final cause for the artist himself, and that was to produce this picture of something that he deeply loved. Now, I began the evening with those four causes because what you saw there was a statue. Everyone say statue. 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 It's a cognate. A cognate of a Latin word that that is related to two other words. What do you think would be related to statute? Statute. In addition, if you look at the cognate for the, the Latin meaning of the word constitution, statute, statue, they're all in line and they all mean the same thing. Something that is to stand and not be moved. Pausing for effect. It's not to be moved. It's not to be moved. And so when our founders put together the U.S. Constitution, it was a work of art. And so tonight, just in the time we have together, we're going to see the four causes of those that put together this work of art that is not to be moved. Why they did it and all the causes in relation to the U.S. Constitution. So, the first that we looked at with the Statue of David, which was one that we know the answer to in regards to the Statue of David, is the material cause. If the material cause of the Statue of David was marble, what would you guess would be the material cause for the U.S. Constitution? Why, or let me, let me, let me back that up. The U.S. Constitution is a picture of America itself, What is America? What is America? It's an idea. And it's an idea that's fashioned by these four causes. Now, the material cause for America, what was it? I'm I'm hearing some good stuff. Over here, I'm hearing nothing. This is, I might have to mingle. Is anyone hot or am I just nervous? Yeah, can we get some air in here? Whew. Wake everybody up. So we, saw, we heard ink. Fascinating. Uh, I'm, what'd you say? People. Did everyone hear people? This is a good one. Give me another one. Freedom, ideals, liberty. All right, here we go. Have you ever heard the term Continental Army? What was the Continental Army? It was the Army of the Revolution. It was our our forces. They called themselves the Continental Army. And not by chance. They had an absolute love. And it it, it will never happen again in the history of mankind. It will never happen again in the history of mankind. This material cause where you have gathered for the first time in history people who are educated, people who understand the law, people who have who have an understanding of free commerce people who have all of these things are now looking for a place to expand and they come to the new world and as they enter immediately they're enthralled with the idea of western expansion the land was the material cause as were the people The people gather together, and it will never again happen where you have this group of folks that are inspired by religion, free market, for a myriad of things that we'll cover in time, arrive on land that is open for the taking. Now, we can also go through the aspects of Indians and those who are already previously here, but this mindset of establishing a government and moving west. That's why they called them the Continental Army. They had a love for the continent, where they were going. I think it was in 1806, after Jefferson had become president of the United States in the election of 1800, that they assigned Lewis and Clark to go find out just how much land is there. And, and this is a fascinating study if you want to track that to see what was entailed in Lewis and Clark's expedition, but it was so exciting to the American people because this was their heart. So the material cause for what is America found itself in these two things, the land and the people. The land and the people. So as this this work of art, this this movement of mankind, what is America is starting to take form, the first cause, the material cause is the land and the people. And just look around the room. Every, every shape imaginable. We come from all kinds of different ancestries. And yet we come here to the United States. If you are to live your entire life in Japan and then become a, a, a citizen of, of the nation of Japan, you will never be considered Japanese. You'll never be considered Italian. You'll never be considered French. But in America, when you become a citizen of the United States of America, you are an American. And this is a fascinating concept. And so as we put all of this together, we see the material cause as the land and the people. Now, the efficient cause, um, who made it? Who put this idea of America together? We know that the efficient cause for the Statue of David was Michelangelo, but what was the efficient cause for the United States of America? And it comes down to just simply the founders, the founding Fathers and and this idea of of what they considered in regards to looking at a constitutional republic. When you look at the Constitutional Convention of seventeen eighty seven, you understand that they're at odds. Um, it was. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, who called for three days of fasting and prayer to come back, they now, after following that, came up with a, a bicameral legislature this lower house, which would be the Congress, and the upper house, which was the Senate, to be able to get state representation for the states that didn't have as much population, wanted equal representation. The larger states felt as though they deserved more, so they created a lower house. Those representatives would serve two years. The upper house, the Senate, would serve six years. The president would serve four. And they laid this out, and this is the picture that they came up with. Now, with this idea of the efficient cause, the founders were, were folks that uh, in the 1730s and 40s, you had the first great awakening, and then in the 1780s up until about 1820, you had the second great awakening. One of the things we're going to take a look at in our course together is the New England Primer, which was the primary textbook to, in America and was still used up until the 1930s. When you see this, you'll be fascinated. We'll cover that in time. And also when they came over, They were influenced, especially with the Mayflower Compact, and we're going to take a look at some of these great documents in American history. The Mayflower Compact, when they came over, these pilgrims that had come over, the the Bible that they had in 1621 was a Bible called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Reformation. Now, the Bible of the Reformation, this Geneva Bible, uh, was no different than any of the other Bibles they had. You've heard of the King James Bible that many of you are holding, and they probably have a new King James version. This was authorized, obviously, by King James, but he did it in response to the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible of the Reformation, and this is why it was so significant. It was the exact same scriptures that you find in the Bible you're holding, but it had a margin to the right of each page. And in the margin, it had notes, and those notes dealt with civil government, and this is what the Reformers started to apply by looking at Scripture. What does does government look like in this idea of civil government as they began to search Scriptures? And so this created this idea of the Reformation, and it began to come over to the United States, and the Mayflower Compact came together, and they started to look at Scriptures, and and. Honestly, the, the pilgrims in 1621, when you go into the, uh, rotunda in the Capitol building, you see a picture of the founders and they've got their Bible open and you can see very clearly what Bible it is. It's the Geneva Bible. And this inspired this idea of representation. This inspired the idea of, of realizing that we are free before God Almighty. Prior to 1621 and prior to this experiment in representative government, it was all a monarchy, the divine right of kings. He owned the land and you were his subjects. And as a result... He could do whatever he wanted, take from you whatever he wanted, and accomplish these things. And we can go further back to the Magna Carta, which began this experimentation in personal liberty and this freedom that we're looking at as America today, the land of the free, home of the brave. And so with every government on the face of the earth being a monarchy, for the first time, they looked at this idea of self-governance. And as they started to put this together, and we'll go through all of it, this absolutely changed the dynamic of of government on the face of the earth, never before seen. Now it was frightening to kings to have this idea of self-governance and taking away the divine right of kings. And so as a result of the Geneva Bible and what had occurred, the king of England outlawed, Any English Bible being printed in colonial lands that wasn't authorized by the king. And so the king authorized the the production of the King James Bible. And he did that to thwart the Geneva Bible. And it was the exact same scriptures, but all the margins with the commentary were removed. Just tell him you're in class. Do you want me to talk to him? And so all of the, the commentary in the margins was removed. And it wasn't going to be until a, a, an act of Congress uh, was called the Revolutionary Bible or the Bible of the Revolution that following 1783 with the Battle of Yorktown and the Paris Peace Treaty, uh, when, when the British surrendered, that one of the very first acts of the Continental Congress was to produce 20,000 copies of what was called the, the, revolution, the Bible of the Revolution. It's one of the rarest books uh, in, a, in the world today. I think there's 23 or 26 remaining copies. And this was to disseminate to the citizens of the United States for the education and the understanding of this freedom. We'll go through other aspects of that, but I wanted to come to this place where we understand the efficient cause was the founders. They had an understanding of liberty. They had an understanding of freedom and, met, and, and a lion's share of that. And we'll defend it through original source documentation their desire was to realize that our rights don't come from man, they come from God and, and, and creator. Now, you had Presbyterians, you had Methodists, you had, you had a myriad of different denominations, and yet they all operated in this context of being accountable before a creator. And we'll take a look at that momentarily. The formal cause, this is the third aspect of it, we know that the formal cause, the form of Michelangelo's work was David. But what is the formal cause of America? The formal cause of America can be found in its three branches of government, legislative, executive, judicial branch, where you've got your legislature, you've got your president, you've got the Supreme Court. And and this came out of, of Exodus 22, 11. No, 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 I'm sorry. This comes out of Isaiah 42. Forty four, eleven. it's off the top of my head, but it says that the Lord is our lawgiver, he's our king, right? And he's our judge. So you had the legislative branch, you had the executive branch, and you had the judicial branch. And they took a look at all these different representations that we have to be in a checks and balance system. If two of the three stand against one, they can lower that. And they were dealing with Judges that were legislating from the bench and they would shut them down and they had to deal with that with this monarchy and they wanted to remove that from there. And so they started to establish this form of government and the formal cause can be found real simply in what we've been looking at tonight, especially with the Statue of David, is they established the U.S. Constitution. This statute, this immovable constitution, this statute, was to govern mankind in the expansion westward and the growth of a nation that would con- that, that would constrain it to these principles that would govern people. And those were, were the operating documents from the visionary document of the Declaration of Independence. This was the operating document. And we're gonna take a look at that in great length as we go through this class together, the seven articles, 27 amendments, we'll take a look at that in time. But this is the picture. Now, The final cause, and this is one that's exciting to me, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on it, and then I'll conclude our time together tonight and answer some questions. But the final cause, for Michelangelo, we can assume it was a love. But the final cause and the movement of what made America boils down to this one simple aspect, the Declaration of Independence the Declaration of Independence. Can we pull up the first portion of the Declaration of Independence? When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary, and that just means in the course of human events at all times, at all times, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God. They are about ready to take on the greatest power on the face of the earth that had just defeated the second greatest power on the face of the earth, France. And they're going to engage in a war and so they are calling upon the God of creation. They realize that we are are picking a fight against uh, an entity that is far larger and stronger than us, but based on these principles on which we stand, these are reasons for us to stand and not be moved like David before Goliath. And so this statue and this immovable picture and what they're putting together in the formation of America, this formal cause, is declared here that among the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And they go on to list all of them. And as they list this, what had happened is... Britain, or Great Britain, had taken on a battle with France, and in the 1760s, 1760, 1763, up until that period of time, they had been victorious, but they had spent their treasury, and it imposed unbelievable taxes upon the colonies, and they started to overwhelm these colonists. As they started to examine what they had put together and some of the understandings of the founders, they started to put these principles together about self-governance, And this was an inspiration to them, and this is what brings this together. Let's go to the next portion. Now, I I, I love this passage, uh, passage, as many do, and and, and today there's there's an attempt to separate the Declaration of Independence from the U.S. Constitution. We love what's written in the Constitution. It inspires mankind. It is a, a poetic document in many regards, but the Constitution itself, quite honestly, is boring, and it's hard to get through. And many of you, you look tired now. Just wait. (laughs) But look at this statement. This has echoed through the halls of history and has affected mankind for 241 years as these words were penned. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's a Jeffersonian way of saying any idiot can understand this. Well, me too. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are what? that they are endowed by their creator. Four times in the Declaration of Independence, they call upon the name of God. Creator, God. Realizing that rights don't come from men, they come from God. And this idea of inalienable, unalienable, you see the word in the the middle of that word, lean? You see that lean? Unalienable? Unalienable? Lean means that you have a lien. You you owe something. There's no liens on this. These rights can't be taken and can't be given away. They're given to you by your creator. This this was unheard of in the history of the world. That you are are not a slave or a serf to any other human being. You, before God, have these unalienable rights. And it goes on to list these unalienable rights that among these, among, not all of them, but among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life. This idea that we can pursue life. And, and why did they put life first? Well, because liberty and pursuit of happiness or virtue is, as it would be described in their culture. Liberty and, and virtue are of scarce little value if you're dead right? Anybody? That's why we're a nation of life. In our congregation, uh, we have a family, the Sunderlands, and their daughter, uh, Abigail, uh, was attempting to be the youngest girl, female, to circumnavigate solo in a sailboat around the world. And many of you saw that she got stuck between Africa and Australia, and the Indian Ocean or southern portion thereof, and a rogue wave uh, broke her mast, and, and everything, they just, they, everyone went all out. And the idea was, we've got to save her. And, and through appeals and the like, uh, by Americans, Qantas Airlines sailed out, and then uh, ship's captain of a, of a French vessel came, and he was the one to, to get her off the boat. And what was fascinating is they went on later to have another child, and they named the child uh, after the captain of that French vessel. But in America, we go to great lengths to preserve life. Do you remember Jessica that fell down the well in Texas? I mean, it was on the news. Some of you younger folks have no clue what I'm talking about. But we were glued to the television in relation to this. We're a nation of life. Now, of course, in America, we're struggling with the definition of life. We're we're having problems with that. Um, And yet, our founder said that we have, that among these are life. Then liberty. Liberty... Liberty's interesting. Freedom, Thomas Jefferson said, was having choices. Freedom is having choices. And, and I, I've shared this often, but for some of the folks who are new, just enjoy this. Others, just bear with it yet again. But you have this idea of a scale. And um, on this scale, this is the picture of what freedom is. So if you get a paycheck, and and you make $100 a week. And and you, you open that paycheck, you have $100, and you go to a restaurant where anything on, everything on the menu is $100 or less. You have the freedom to order anything on that menu because freedom is having choices. You can order anything you want on that menu because it's $100 or less. But if you're going out to your car with your paycheck, or you've cashed it, and, and as you cash it, you realize Uncle Sam's taken... Some money from you, right? I don't know what the tax rate is for somebody making $100 a week, but they've taken some money from you. Or you walk out and someone puts a gun to you and says, give me your money. The results are the same, whether it's the government or a robber. (laughs) If they take 25 percent of your paycheck, that leaves you with $75. So you have 25% less choices, thus you have 25% less freedom. If they take 50%, you have 50% less choices and 50% less freedom. And if they take it all, actually, let's just go here. Let's say they take 75%, you get $25. And if they take it all, you're known as a slave. You work all day for somebody else who didn't do the labor, but they take your money. So freedom is having choices. Do you see? It's not that difficult to fathom, although apparently the federal government doesn't have a clue. Well, maybe they do. (laughs) Now, if freedom is having choices, liberty is a little bit different. Liberty is... The ability to do what's right. I love this illustration, it's one of my favorites. If your child comes home from school and says, mommy and daddy, all the kids in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. You would say, well child, that's the moral thing to do. And they're thinking yes. But then they say, where's your character? You see, liberty is having character. Character is doing what's right. And so you would say, instead of that's the moral thing to do, you'd turn to the child and you'd say, why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? That's character. That's liberty. Doing what's right. Well, I, I would be laughed at. One in nine Americans fought in the Revolutionary War. You're enjoying freedom that somebody else wrought for you. This America that has been designed by these four causes that we've enjoyed for 241 years, men and women have bled and died for it. They, they, they took on the greatest entity on the face of the earth so you could sit here in freedom. No one's coming in with a gun. Somebody may have one and you might have issue, but don't try because there's others that are ready to. Anyways, where were we? <laughs> and character is doing what's right. And you can always do what's right, even in prison. One of my favorite passages, and I'm putting on my pastor's hat, is the Apostle Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. And you know where he wrote that? He was in prison. He was in prison. When they said we pledge our lives, our, 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 fortune, our, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, and they signed this document that you're reading, they, there, was already, uh, there was already a hit on them. And they stepped it up. And as I said, one in nine fought. In 1776, December of 1776, in Valley Forge, and after they had signed this document, July 4, 1776, the Continental Army lost battle after battle after battle after battle. Wiped out. They lost all of their ammunition and stores in Manhattan. They'd finally been able to cross the East River into Harlem Heights, and they got up to Valley Forge to winter there. And by January, the conscriptions would be up in 1777. Washington knew he was in trouble. He was looking at half of, or uh, I think it was either a third or no, it was a half of his of his forces had dysentery. They were sick. A third of those that could fight didn't have boots. They wrapped their feet in burlap sacks. He passed out a pamphlet written by Thomas Paine that says it was called the American Crisis. These are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in the season shrink from the duty of their country but those who defend it now. And it was so inspiring. Thomas Paine, and, and you, you want to talk about a salad with tomatoes and onions and Thomas Paine if if you would think this is theocracy and you think this is dominionism Thomas Paine for the most part was an agnostic he he was somebody who just like to take down monarchies he wasn't a very religious man he had an issue with the church but this man was used to inspire the revolution and Washington read these papers and he passed out the American crisis to every one of the soldiers that were capable of fighting. And they began this march in, in, uh, uh, on December 24th, 11 miles to Trenton, crossed the Delaware in one of the worst snowstorms in the eastern seaboard. And, and many of them just froze to death on the way there. And he knew if he didn't secure a victory, this war and this experiment in liberty would be over. And they had to do what's right. And so they marched based on this. They crossed the Delaware. They surprised the Hessians on, on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1776, while most Americans were in their homes waiting for their big turkey to have a tryptophan now. And they surprised the Hessians, lost very few men, if any at all. I can't recall exactly. Uh, and if you're better at it, you let me know. And it was this that secured and saw the enlistments increase. France entered in the war. And here we are today as a result of that handful of folks that were remaining who realized this is something that was worth fighting for. That's liberty. Doing what's right. Doing what's right. And we're in America today where we have forgotten what we, who we are and what this is. And I just want to commend all of you. Some of you have no idea who I am. You maybe saw an ad in the paper. You thought, I'll come out for this. But I want to commend you. And, and through the course of time, we'll have a chance to dialogue together and spend time together. And, and some things I may get wrong and some things you may get wrong. But I'll tell you what, this is a good thing to be doing right now. We need to revisit who we are. Yes. And so as we're taking a look at this, they said life, liberty, and then the idea of the pursuit of Happiness. Happiness. There are some that believe that happiness is leave me alone. And and our idea of law, our idea of law is the absence of restraint. Uh, A libertarian view in some regards, not all libertarians, but a libertarian view is just the absence of constraint. Just let me do my own thing and stay out of my business. Now, The ancients didn't look at the law as the absence, or excuse me, didn't look at freedom as the absence of restraint. The ancients, fascinatingly enough, if you go into the stairwell of the law school at Harvard Law School, there, right there, enshrined, is a definition of the law. And it says this. It says, the wise restraints... That's a good S right there. woo that make men free. How do restraints make you free? Were they idiots? No. The ancients looked at the law as the wise restraints that make men free. And it's based on that third portion, the pursuit of happiness or virtue. Virtue is this idea that you apply restraints in order to be free. I'll give you an example. And this is one of my favorite examples because I was just captivated by the game. Last year's Super Bowl, Tom Brady. We don't even... Marvel comics, that guy was unreal. I mean, just killing it. And the greatest comeback in NFL history in a Super Bowl, what a game. Tom Brady, and here he is, he's no young pup, but he's looking good, although they got beat, but he's looking really good. This guy's gifted. And I'll tell you what, I watched that game on the sofa, with a bag of potato chips, and an ice cold Coke as you can see. This is a body by In-N-Out. Tom Brady, at his age, is just unbelievably in shape. And he has the ability to enjoy football at a higher level of excellence than I ever will be. You see, you apply restraints for the pursuit of you apply restraints for the pursuit of, pay attention, you apply restraints for the pursuit of excellence. We were inspiring people to pursue excellence. That's why we don't allow alcohol and drugs or anything of that sort to be sold, I think, 100 yards or 100 feet from a school. We apply these restraints so that our children have the ability to pursue excellence. But now there's a change in the law. The change now is, we have changed the definition to be law is the absence of restraint. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? And if you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, this is an old Danish proverb, if you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, you'll end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. One of the hardest things to do as parents is to tell our children, no. Problem with the millennial generation is they're like, You've given me everything. I have a participation ribbon. Everyone told me I'm fantastic. (laughs) And I got to school and I got an F. You didn't apply yourself. But I never had to before because I always got a participation ribbon. And there's nobody who's better or worse. And there's no competition. and, And we have a group of kids that now they've been given everything. And they don't know how to say thank you anymore. But the idea of applying restraints for the pursuit of excellence that's what the law was intended to do. Keep us from this so that we could obtain this. You see, when I was sitting on the, on the couch with a bag of potato chips and a soda, Tom Brady, and this, that wasn't the first time I've done that. I've done it quite a bit. He was out on the football field practicing. I thought that I could obtain excellence by playing Nintendo or Xbox or whatever it is. And I realized that that just doesn't work. But he's out there pursuing excellence, so he is now able to attain a higher excellence and the freedom to pursue football at a level that I never have the ability to because I didn't apply the restraints like he did. That's what we want to instill in what made America great, the pursuit of happiness or virtue, applying restraints for the pursuit of excellence. Does that make sense? Yes. I've got nine minutes, so let's wrap it up that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent. Everyone say consent. Consent. Consent of the governed. This is the final cause. If you want to rule over me, you need my permission first. I'm going to test your mettle. I'm going to examine your life. And only with my consent will I give you the authority to govern in what we consider governments of man. You don't own me, you never will, and I'm gonna hold you in check and design this constitution to create a statute, an immovable statute, statute, constitution that will govern us now for 241 years, that you will not be able to step out of the bounds of that and usurp authority that I'm giving you on loan by consent. Now we're watching that erode. And we have to re-educate ourselves. This isn't taught in schools anymore. We have an entire generation of young people that once we take away their ability to learn, and instead of letting them see source documents, instead we feed them what we want them to know and indoctrinate them, we lose the idea of self-governance. And this is what makes the Constitution in America this work of art that all of us have had the great privilege to be a part of in our lifetime. Now if it's gonna survive depends on whether or not we hold these truths to be self-evident. We have to reexamine that, take a look at this statute, this statute, this immovable Constitution, and start to hold those that we have given the consent to govern us, we have to hold them accountable and they can't remove these fences That people bled and died to protect. And when I put my hand, they didn't have it. But when I swore to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that was not only for my sake, but for yours as well, because I'm an elected official. Used to be called public servant. I'm not here to drain the till, I'm here to do your bidding. And by your consent, I have the ability to govern. Without your consent, I don't. And if I begin to take that away from you, and you don't do anything, that's your fault. Because this constitutional republic and the statute—do you remember what happened to the Toa David? Got hit with a hammer. It was a lapita. Excuse me. You're right. It got hit with a hammer. They both did. Now I'm confused. And that'll happen quite a bit in this time together. There wasn't a guard to protect this immovable object. And people will do their best to destroy it from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And so I want to commend all of you for coming tonight.